0: Good afternoon, this is Dr. James Matera, I'm the Senior Vice President for Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer, as well as a clinical nephrologist at Central State Medical Center in Freehold, New Jersey. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, impact of diabetic kidney disease and some of the newer studies that have come out showing our ability to help control some of the downsides of diabetic kidney disease. Just to put things into perspective, chronic kidney disease in the United States is an ongoing issue. And there are many reasons why that is. A lot of it is that patients may not even know that they have chronic kidney disease. But if you look year after year, from 2016 to 2017, there's been an uptick in the number of both chronic kidney disease and end stage renal disease patients. In fact, at the end of 2017, we had over three quarters of a million patients on dialysis here. Of note also, the government is taking a look at this, and President Trump did. Place some guidelines in trying to get more patients onto home dialysis and certainly to increase the number of transplants that occur in the United States. One of the most common reasons for people to be on dialysis in this country and to have chronic kidney disease is diabetic renal disease. So, I would like to spend a few minutes talking about some of the things that have occurred over the last several years. So, we have been dealing with pharmacological agents for the management of diabetic kidney disease for many years. 27 years ago when I first started practice, uh, we didn't have a lot in the way of glucose management to help our patients. We thought that just lowering their glucose would be enough and that our focus was primarily on blood pressure control. And this was because of the advent of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, which came later, and the impact of chronic kidney disease. So that's been our mainstay for the last 25 or so years. And there is substantial evidence of the anti-proteinuric effect of both ACE inhibitors and ARB therapy in patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus and microalbuminuria. We also know that there's clear evidence that ACE inhibitor treatment slows the rate of decline of renal function particularly in patients with type 1 diabetes and established diabetic nephropathy. We also have very clear evidence that angiotensin receptor blockade slows the rate of decline in renal function in patients with type 2 diabetes and established diabetic nephropathy. And these date back to the original Captopril studies and then ultimately Losartan and airbusartin, which became the mainstay for our therapy. Oftentimes I get asked, which would you use? And there's really no clear-cut recommendation But we do recommend the use of either an ACE or an ARB for patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus and diabetic nephropathy. But a type 1 patient, there's a little more evidence that ACE inhibitors may be the first line therapy for this group. So just this year, uh, in fact, last month at the uh, American Society of Nephrology meetings, there was a great study that showed patients with non-dialysis-dependent chronic kidney disease who discontinue angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ARBs therapy, were at increased risk for death and progression to dialysis initiation. This was done in a cohort of patients from the VA, primarily in Texas, but uh, all across the country, over 230,000 patients. So again, this therapy, uh, blocking the RAS system, has been in place for over 25 years and continues to be the backbone of our treatment. Interestingly enough, of late, we've started to see that managing the glucose and what we use to manage the glucose is also very important. If we look at our GLP-1 agonists for glucose control, these anti-diabetic agents increase glucose-dependent secretion of insulin from the functioning beta cells in the pancreas. They also decrease glucagon release after meals, decrease hepatic glucose production, delayed gastric emptying, and actually suppress the appetite to promote beta cell proliferation. There have been about four trials out with these agents and their effect on chronic kidney disease, and what I want to spend a minute or two looking at is the AWARD7 trial. This was a dulaglutide, which was shown against insulin glargine in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus and moderate to severe chronic kidney disease they did find that the GLP-1 agonist outperformed the insulin glargine in this subgroup of patients. Now, some would say that not all the patients are on insulin and that perhaps other agents comparative to that would be uh, better affected. But we do know that the GLP-1 agonists favorably affect major chronic kidney disease risk factors by improving control of hyperglycemia, hypertension, and excess body weight. In addition, they modify chronic kidney disease risk factors they also have some signaling that which promotes antioxidant effects, anti-inflammatory effects, which we all know are promotional in chronic kidney disease, and also antifibrotic effects in the diabetic kidney. This is important because this is the first time that we're really looking at the oral hypoglycemic agents and their effect. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists can fill a lot of needs They are agents that can be used safely and effectively in patients with moderate to severe kidney disease. And they'll also slow the decline of the estimated GFR in patients with GFR under 30 milliliters per minute. So these uh, encouraging results also help us look at that, but there are some cardiovascular outcome trials that need to be done so that we can be more comfortable with these agents as well. The one I want to spend a little time talking about today are the SGLT2 inhibitors. These are the sodium glucose co-transporter inhibitors, that have a potential to exert nephroprotection by improving glycemic control, but also through glucose independent effects. That's very important because these agents may be useful in the non-diabetic population as time goes on. We'll have to see based on studies, but that could be one of the outcomes that we've seen from some of these trials. Some of those independent effects is that they lower blood pressure, which we spoke about already. They can also have some direct renal effects as well. So these agents were initially developed to lower blood glucose levels in patients with type 2 diabetes. When they started looking at these trials, they were designed to meet the regulatory requirements for cardiovascular safety, but the investigators during these trials found that cardiovascular events with these agents went down. So the secondary and exploratory analysis of all these trials that led to their approval showed that they might also improve renal outcomes, but there was still some uncertainty. That was the nidus for the study called the Credence study, which I'll talk about shortly. Back to the SGLT2 inhibitors, they also have renal hemodynamic effects, which include reducing glomerular hyperfiltration, a known starter of diabetic kidney disease, as well as inhibitory effects and anti-inflammatory effects, which we spoke about. One of the things that caught my attention initially when I saw patients on these agents, as I was dipping their urine in the office, I noticed substantial glycosuria, which until I recognized the agent kind of got me worried there. But these do lead to substantial glycosuria and a reduction in fasting and postprandial plasma glucose levels without stimulating insulin secretion. So therefore, you don't really get a lot of hypoglycemia with these agents. So I wanna spend a few minutes talking about the CREDENCE trial. I think that there are several trials that come to light uh, through our careers. One was the Paradigm HF trial, which led to the ARNIs being approved. And I think CREDENCE has the impact or the potential to be a game changer here. When we first look at trials, uh, looking at the SGLT2 inhibitors dating back to the mid 2010s, 2014 and 15, they had several trials. There was the CVOT trial, the EMPA-REG trial, the Outcome 7 trial, and these reported that empagliflozin, one of the SGLT2 inhibitors, reduced the risk of cardiovascular death dating back to about 2015, so it was noted to perhaps be a change in the landscape of diabetes management. So when they looked at these, they also showed that these agents reduced the risk of hospitalization for heart failure Suggesting that these drugs were not only beneficial to patients, but could also reduce one of the high-cost items in healthcare, just as health systems were starting to look at avoidance of repeat hospitalizations and readmissions. Every day in my role now, we deal with readmissions, and certainly congestive heart failure, and the impact of that is one of our common readmissions that we deal with every day. So let me tell you a little bit about the background of the Credence trial. And again, it kind of bore itself out from the entities that I was talking about earlier, showing some of these maybe unexpected or expected outcomes that they saw with these agents. So Credence had a number of enrollees of about 4,400. The duration of follow-up was 2.6 years. The mean patient age was 63 years. And it was a predominantly male study with only about 34% females. The trial was stopped early due to overwhelming benefit, and we see this periodically in some of our trials, and that's what kind of leads us, to, to me, to be a potential game changer. If you look at the primary outcomes, which are end-stage renal disease, doubling of the serum creatin, and renal or cardiovascular deaths for canigliflozin, which was the agent used here, versus placebo, it was 43.2 versus 61.2 per thousand patient years. So a marked reduction in those primary outcomes. And that was the same across the board. In fact, for end-stage renal disease, it was 20.4 versus 29.4 for conigliflozin versus placebo. When you look at some of the secondary outcomes, all-cause mortality, cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, hospitalization for heart failure, unstable angina, and actually amputations, which I'll talk about in a moment, but all-cause mortality, and cardiovascular deaths went down. Amputation did not. It stayed about the same placebo versus canagliflozin, And it wasn't really looked at as a potential outcome for this, but there was certainly no increase in amputations. There was also a noted reduction of 0.3% in hemoglobin A1C at 13 weeks. Interestingly enough, the beneficial effects that we saw were noted irrespective of the baseline A1C including among patients whose baseline A1C was between 6.5 and 7, which we would call controlled at this point. So I think if we summarize credence, we have to look at what the observed benefits were. And these were all obtained on that background or that backbone of renin-angiotensin system blockade, which has been the only approved renal protective medications. So this is an additive benefit to what we already have in place. In contrast to completed cardiovascular outcome trials, this trial included a population that was at high risk for kidney failure and had the primary outcome of major renal endpoints. Very important as we go through this. So they also found that patients who received canagliflozin, including those who had a reduced estimated GFR at baseline, had a lower risk of the primary outcomes versus placebo, as well as less end-stage kidney disease. When you look at that alone, The impact of that on the monetary and burden on the healthcare system for end-stage renal disease management is outstanding. So, again, looking at this trial, these findings were observed despite very modest between-group differences in blood glucose level, weight, blood pressure, many of the other demographics that we looked at. So this does suggest that the benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitors may very well be independent of the glucose level and may stem from a reduction in things like interglomerular pressure and other possible mechanisms that are currently being studied. So before I move on, let's talk a little bit about these clinical implications. What does this study impact and how can clinicians go forward from this? So I think when clinicians are considering treatment for cardiovascular and renal protection of patients with diabetes, they should do so regardless of whether there is known cardiovascular disease, so they can hope to expect protection against major cardiovascular events, even in patients without pre-existing cardiovascular disease. We all know that our chronic kidney disease patients, they don't die of kidney disease, they die of cardiovascular disease, no matter what age they are, they're at higher risk. If you look at the number to treat for cardiovascular outcomes, it ranged from 29 to 40 in the overall population, 36 to 53 in the primary prevention group, and 21 to 44 in the secondary prevention group. So again, the use of the SGLT2 inhibitor did decrease the number needed to treat to save one cardiovascular event. So conigliflozin is approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and this is really the first study of these agents that was dedicated to evaluate renal outcomes specifically in diabetes with albuminuric nephropathy and supports the initiation of the agents in patients with GFRs even as low as 30 milliliters per meter squared and continuing them until renal replacement therapy is initiated, uh, which was the approach they used in Credence. Interestingly enough, in my practice, I'm not seeing a great penetrance of these agents into our armamentarium, and that may be related to some of the adverse effects that have been touted, such as the potential uh, fungal infections, fournier's gangrene, and things like that, dehydration, and potential adverse renal outcomes, but I do think we need to weigh those adverse outcomes against the potential benefits. So I think this is uh, showing us that we have SGLT2 inhibitors as an agent that can move more into the forefront for treatment of diabetic kidney disease and diabetes in particular. There are certainly more to follow on this story, but it's an evolving story that I think is very important. So the future of these agents is still very bright, and uh, there's actually a combined SGLT1 and SGLT2 inhibitor called sotagliflozin, which is being evaluated for both type one and type two. Now remember, the SGLT2 inhibitors are only type two indications. So our type one patients may see some benefit from these agents as well. Those studies are ongoing. Interestingly enough, the effects of the SGLT2 inhibitors from some of their other mechanisms are being shown to be potential in other disease states. For example, we know that they may block the sodium hydrogen exchanger that we see in the kidney, which links the pathophysiology and treatment of diabetes with that of heart failure. So in addition to blocking this transporter or exchange in the kidney, you reduce interglomerular pressure, a known risk factor for progression of kidney disease. So if you start to have an osmotic diuresis by these agents, they put glucose out and that's an osmotic diuresis that occurs. This may result in a greater electrolyte-free water clearance and ultimately greater fluid clearance from the interstitial space than from the circulation. This may help with congestive relief in patients with uh, congestive heart failure with a minimal impact on blood volume. We all know our patients with severe, especially systolic heart failure, are at risk for cardiorenal syndrome. And then we get into that vicious cycle of diuresis, hold diuresis because the creatinine went up, Symptoms worsen, admissions occur, increased diuresis, and we get into this cycle. So these agents may have a benefit on this. Another major factor that's coming about is the presence or the progression of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. That has become also a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And in fact, at this year's CRS, which we had in Orlando, we had a talk or two on this. The SGLT2 inhibitors may have a significant reduction in alanine aminotransferase, body weight, and reduce the fatty liver index. So there's a lot going on with these agents that may also be independent of diabetes or not. So stay tuned for those. I think we have some exciting things coming out in the future on these. Let's uh, do a couple of take-home points that I want you to get from this. And again, focusing a little bit on the Credence study that we spoke of. But uh, the first take-home point is use of SGLT2 inhibitors significantly cut the risk for primary composite endpoints of dialysis, transplantation, or death from kidney disease by about 33%. This was consistent benefit that was observed across the trial. SGLT2 inhibitors also consistently and significantly reduces the risk of end-stage renal disease and acute kidney injury by 35 and 25% respectively. So that does kind of allay some of our concerns that SGLT2 inhibitors increase acute kidney injury risk. Certainly, you need to pay attention to that. Previous research suggested that the efficacy of these agents would lessen with declining kidney function, but there was clear separate evidence of benefit for patients in almost all eGFR groups in a meta-analysis that focused also on the Credence study, including those with a very low baseline GFR that we would call stage 3B, 30 to 45 milliliters per minute. In the past, SGLT2 inhibitors were not recommended for those, but they also noticed a significant 30% reduction in risk for substantial loss of kidney function, end-stage renal disease or death from kidney disease. So I think that's very important. So also recall that these agents, along with lowering blood glucose, SGLT2 inhibitors reduce blood pressure, can reduce weight, although I don't tout that to my patients as a major effect. And we're starting to see the results of albuminuria as well. So that's another potential risk factor that we can help alleviate in these patients. So while we have the backbone of the ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blocker inhibitors that we've had for a number of years, we also now have to pay attention to the glucose control and not just what the A1C is, but what the agents do. So 25 years ago, You came into my office. I told you the three most important things to do for controlling diabetic kidney disease were control your blood pressure, control your blood pressure, and control your blood pressure. Now we know that you must control your blood pressure, and it depends and does coexist with what agents you use. Control your blood sugar, and again, we're starting to see evidence that the agents that you use for that may be more beneficial, and most importantly, reduce their cardiovascular risk. That is the primary endpoint that our patients have their highest mortality from, and anything that we can do with the agents that we use is going to be beneficial for these patients. I hope this was helpful to you. The Credence study is widely available. I suggest that you do read it. It's one of the landmark studies that have come out, and I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday season and a great new year.